A large part of our DNA as a church is that we want to be continually going outward as a church, that we love God, and because of our love for God, we love others as well. And so we want to be connected with other missionaries and other churches throughout the, uh, throughout the nation and then throughout the world. And if you think about it, we're celebrating Easter today as a congregation, but there are literally billions of people around the planet celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think that's exciting to be a part of something that is so huge. If you have your Bible, open it up, turn it on to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, if you don't have a Bible, we will show the scriptures on the, verse, on the screen behind me. Uh, Some time back, a buddy of mine and I went to a Monday night Dallas Cowboy football game, and this was back during the Cowboys' heyday. Now, I can kind of tell how old you are based upon when you think the Cowboys' heyday was. Now, how many of you think the Cowboys' heyday was back in the Landry years? Okay, you're, you're over 45, okay? Uh, how many of you think the Cowboys' heyday was between the Aikman, Emmett, Irvin years in the 90s? Okay, you're probably between 30 and 45. How many of you are like, I didn't know the Cowboys ever had a heyday, and I don't even know what the word heyday means, okay? You're probably under 35. Well, this was back in 1994, I believe, and it was an epic game. It featured two Hall of Fame running backs, Emmett Smith and Barry Sanders, and together they rushed for about 350 yards that night. Uh, The Cowboys scored a late touchdown to send it into overtime. Uh, Leon Lett, remember big Leon Lett? He blocked, I think, a couple field goals, and the stadium was absolutely electric. I mean, there was one point in in the game where my buddy and I were like holding each other, jumping up and down in excitement, and I'm a little ashamed to admit that, but for some reason I feel better having gotten that out, you know. And, and, and we went into overtime, and we thought they were going to win, and then there was a fumble, and then Jeff Hansen, the Lions kicker. I'm sure he's a great guy. He kicked a 44-yard field goal, and the Cowboys lost. And all that collective energy that was in the room just left immediately. In fact, my buddy and I stayed a little bit later in order to watch the crowd disperse and avoid traffic. And and there was almost an eerie feeling in the stadium because an hour earlier, 64,000 people screaming and yelling and that collective energy force that is there when you get that many people going in the same way, all that was just gone. And it was so eerie and so still, and it just felt so empty. Well, for a week, Eternity's Stadium had been filled with energy. People had watched as this epic battle unfolded between good and evil, between Jesus and sin. And the story we looked, about, looked at last week reveals an energy that was just overflowing as Jesus came into Jerusalem and the people formed an impromptu triumph and they welcomed him as the king coming into Jerusalem shouting Hosanna, Hosanna. And then he goes into Jerusalem and he cleanses the temple. And then there's this amazing teaching and there are these conflicts throughout the week and all this is kind of leading to a conclusion and the, and the energy there in Jerusalem at that Passover feast 
was off the charts. The crowd was sure that Jesus was the Messiah. And in their minds, what that meant was that he was going to come in, lead them out of bondage to Rome, set up his kingdom, and he would provide for them a better life. They would be wealthier. They would be healthier. This hard life that they were living would be eased. But then, beneath the olive branches in the fragrant garden just outside of town known as Gethsemane, Jesus was arrested. Throughout the evening, there was a political trial. The next morning, Jesus was sent to Pontius Pilate, and there before the crowd, he was sentenced. He was brutally scourged, taken outside the city gates, and on a hill called Calvary, he was crucified and killed. And I think in Jerusalem, there had to be just an eerie feeling. All the energy, all the excitement drained, and they lived with this deep emptiness. There was a man by the name of Cleopas, and he and a friend were like a lot of us. They were deeply discouraged. They were depressed. They were grieving. And probably some of us come to church today, and that is our emotion They were very discouraged by what had happened with Jesus because they actually knew Jesus. And so they did what many of us do when something disappointing happens. They analyzed it to death. In verse 13, the story picks up. The Bible says, Now the same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And together they were discussing everything that had taken place. Now, if this were in modern-day times, they would have been journeying to a, a nearby town. Perhaps they were driving to Frisco or they were driving to McKinney. And instead of talking along the way, they probably would have been listening to morning radio, listening to people call in and discuss what had happened in town over the past weekend. They would have been drinking coffee and caffeine would have been saturating their pores. And as they drove, they would have become more and more angry, tied up in knots. Well, in verse 15, while they were discussing, notice this, discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. And then he asked them, What is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking, and they looked discouraged. Now let me give you a big Easter question today. Does God have a sense of humor? Does God have a sense of humor? Well, absolutely, God has a sense of humor. Jesus, after all, is the Son of God. He is part of the Trinity. And right here, Jesus decides to have a little fun with these guys. Now, the Bible said earlier that they had been prevented from recognizing Jesus. So in verse 18, after asking what they were fighting over, one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? Now get the picture here. 
He's talking to Jesus. And he says to him, are you the only person that doesn't know what happened last weekend? There had to be some irony in the air at that point. So Jesus responds, what things? Tell me. Tell me more. I I would like to know what what happened. In, In my mind, Jesus is almost biting down on his lip at this point to keep from laughing. I, I serve on the board at a seminary, and the other day the president was telling us a story about he, he woke up one morning and some students had decided to teepee his house. So he wakes up, and there in the trees and there in the bushes, uh, there is the flowing uh, beauty of toilet paper. Well, that particular morning, there was a group of major donors who were coming to the president's house for breakfast. So you can imagine the welcoming committee as the donors drive up to discover that the president's house had been teepeed. So the president launched the Baptist underground and he found the perpetrators. Two students were summoned to his office and there they sat with fear and trembling as he comes in and begins to just lay into them. He says to them, sons, Do you guys know how much money you could have potentially cost this seminary? Do you know how embarrassed I was whenever I woke up and I saw this outside my house? What should I do to you? And they were hem-hawing and trying to figure out what was the best thing to say. They thought about speaking in grace, but then finally they said, Well, I guess whatever it is you decide to do, we pretty well earned it. Well, the president was trying not to laugh. Because the entire time that he was interrogating these two young students, he had had the deans go to their dorm room, and they were TPing the students' room in exchange. I mean, you got to love it. Well, these men, they were oblivious. They had no idea that they were talking to Jesus, and they were almost patronizing him, saying, do you really know, do not know what happened last weekend? And so they start to tell Jesus all that had happened. The Bible says, they said to him, the things concerning Jesus the Nazarene, who is a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. Well, right here, we discover some of the things that these two men had been arguing over. First of all, they believed Jesus to be a prophet, a great teacher. They had heard Jesus speak. They had seen the magnificence of who he was as a person, and they had concluded that he was obviously a messenger from God, and he was a great prophet and great teacher. Well, secondly, they had a hope. They had hoped that he would be the one, that he would be the Messiah, prophesied about in the Old Testament, who would deliver them from the struggle of their life. 
And then thirdly, they were struggling with whether Jesus could have raised from the dead or not. After all, there were some reports arising that something was different. Well, ironically, 2,000 years later, and people are still arguing over these same three things. Some believe that Jesus was just a great prophet or teacher. Now, Jesus cast such a large shadow over history. You must do something with him. If you think about the impact of Jesus on society, he impacts art, science, education, health care, human relationships, many of the things that we dispute, even in the political arena today, Jesus has cast a shadow over them. There has never been a more significant figure in history than Jesus. Anyone that considers himself or herself a serious thinker to any level has to deal with Jesus at some point. You have to come to some conclusion about him. So many people come to the conclusion, okay, I'm not going to embrace Jesus as the Son of God, but I'll embrace him as he was a, a godly man, he was a moralist, he was a great teacher. Now here's the problem with that destination point. Jesus didn't allow you that because Jesus presented himself as the Son of God. Jesus, unlike other dominant figures in major world religions, didn't simply give us a code to live by. He didn't say, here are my teachings, now embrace these. He said, no, I want you to embrace me. You have to place your faith in me. You have to trust in my goodness, not your goodness, because the core of Jesus' message is that God, through him, is extending to us a grace that we could never earn on our own. That is part of the core. It's part of the uniqueness. It's part of what makes Jesus so special. He said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So in the verbiage of Jesus, he went beyond saying, hey, I'm a great teacher, I'm a moralist. He said, I'm the Son of God. Now, C.S. Lewis, one of the most profound Christian writers uh, uh, to have ever written, uh, really captures this entire argument well when he writes these words. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. And now Lewis begins to dig deep. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg. Or else, he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, still others believe that Jesus' message 
is all about a better life here on earth. But if you read the words of Jesus, he transcended simply the temporal, and he went towards the eternal. Now, I think it is true that whenever you embrace Christ as Savior, that it brings an abundance to your life, a fullness, a meaning, a purpose to your life. You are blessed with forgiveness for the past and purpose for today and hope for tomorrow. But at the heart of Jesus' message was the heart. He simply didn't want behavior or societal transformation. He ultimately wanted heart transformation. And it was out of that heart transformation that behavioral and community transformation would flow. And time and time again, in the message of Jesus, they were like, okay, now is the time where you're going to lead us out of slavery. Now is the time where you're going to establish your kingdom. And Jesus would, continue, dig deep, would continually dig deeper and say, that's not the kingdom that I'm talking to you about right now. In fact, if you go back in the story, when a beaten, bound Jesus stands before the governor, Pontius Pilate, he asks him this question, are you the king of the Jews? Meaning, are you about to try to overthrow us? Are you about to try to establish your throne? And Jesus responds, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over. As it is, my kingdom does not have its origin here. Now, thirdly, some are still struggling with the same thing these two men on the road were struggling with, and that is, could Jesus have really raised from the dead? Now, I would say this, that believing in the resurrection is an act of faith. At the end of the day, for you to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ It's an act of faith. And if you're in this position that you only believe those things which can be scientifically proven, if you're kind of living a Sheldon Cooper-like existence where the world is only verifiable and that's all that is real, then you're going to struggle with embracing the resurrection because at some point there's an act of faith. But I would point out this to you. It's not a blind faith that God has shined light into the mystery of the darkness. And he has given us real reasons why we take that step of faith. Now quickly, let me share with you four things that bring light to our faith in the resurrection. The first is this. The tomb was and is empty. Now that might sound a little bit simplistic, but think about it this way. The tomb had been heavily guarded by Rome. It was not going to be easy for someone to come in and steal the body. Secondly, uh, you do not go back and see, okay, this is where Jesus is buried. You think of other significant figures in history, and you can go to the place where they're buried, and this is where he lays or she lays. But with Jesus, the tomb is and was empty. Secondly, There were hundreds of witnesses, contemporaries of Jesus, who gave testimony that they saw Jesus alive and well. Many of these testimonies were written down, preserved through the ages, so that we look back and we see people that lived at the same time as Jesus and said, yes, I saw it. Let me give you a third reason. There was a radical change in the behavior of the disciples. Do you remember what the disciples did when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane? 
They ran for the hills. They were scared to death. After the crucifixion, the Bible says that they were hiding out. They were fearful that they were next. But then they see the resurrected Christ, and their behavior radically changes. They go from being cowards to being great people of courage. They begin sharing this message that Jesus died and rose again for our sins. They begin sharing that message all over the Roman world. They establish new churches. They are as bold as you can possibly be about sharing the message. Something happened. Something happened that changed their reaction. Now, a fourth reason. These people that were so bold were also willing to die frequently barbaric deaths because they held fast to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, some speculate that what happened were, was the disciples stole the body and then they made up this lie about Jesus rising again. And then they went around sharing the lie. They gained popularity and power, and so they began to really embrace that lie. But there's really only so far you will go with a lie. When, some people, when people start saying, listen, if you don't quit talking this resurrection nonsense, Dusty, we're going to crucify you. We're going to cut your head off. You're going to die badly. When they start telling you that, you say, just kidding. Okay? You start backing up from the lie whenever you know that that lie may cost you your life. And yet the disciples willingly went forward in martyrdom because of their radical belief in the resurrection. Now, God doesn't call you to understand everything about the resurrection. But being a Christian requires that you believe in the resurrection. That you believe that Jesus is the Lord and Savior who died for your sins and overcame death. The story continues in verse 25. Jesus says to them, How unwise and slow you are to believe in your hearts all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So Jesus takes these two men, these two men who were very, very confused, and he begins to clear up all the confusion. He goes back to the teachings of Moses, probably all the way back to Genesis, and he reminds them how God created the heavens and the earth. And at the end of creation, God looked at it and said, this is very good. But then into the creation slithered sin. And there was the fall of humankind. And because of that, we live in a sin-saturated environment. There is injustice. There are things in this world that is just not right. Not only do we live in a sinful environment, but we too rebel against God and we do things that are wrong. I imagine Jesus took them to the story of Noah and he pointed out how God is perfectly just and capable of destroying everything. And whenever we say to God, won't you please destroy evil? We have to be careful because there's evil within us too. And God is capable of destroying everything. But he saved a people. He saved Noah and his family from the destruction. 
and then he painted the rainbow in the sky, and he told Noah, every time you see that, you remember that my story, my intent for humankind is not their destruction, but my intent is their redemption. And I imagine Jesus went through the story of the Old Testament. I imagine he talked about men like Moses, who he made a covenant with and said, those that listen to my voice and obey my commands, they will be my people. They will be my children. And he probably talked about the King David, where he told David, I'm going to establish my kingdom for all eternity. And what I have in store for you, David, is so much more than the temporal reality that you see in front of you. And I would imagine that Jesus told him about Jeremiah, who said, one day there's coming a Messiah, and he's going to establish a new covenant. And when that Messiah comes, he will pour out his spirit on all people, and he will give us a new heart, and our sins will be forgiven and remembered no more. And I would imagine that Jesus talked about Isaiah, who in chapter 53 of his prophecy talked about the suffering servant and how the Messiah would truly come and suffer for the iniquities of us all. And perhaps even Jesus talked about his story with Nicodemus when Jesus spoke some of the most famous words ever spoken that God so loved the world that he sent his what? His only son. Max Lucado takes John 3.16 and frames it with four statements. I like to take the various corners of the cross to establish a visual picture in your mind. You take that famous verse, okay, God so loves the world. And you realize that the story of Christ is motivated by the love of God. My seven-year-old likes to ask me sometimes, Daddy, why does God love us? And I'm like, I don't know. And then she'll ask me, how does he love us so much? I'll be like, I don't know. She'll say, aren't you supposed to know these things? I'm like, I guess. But God so loves the world. And his love for us led him to action. He loved the world so much that he sent his son. And his son lives a life that we could never live. And his son dies on the cross as a substitute for our sin. And his son overcomes death, a date with with which each of us has a destiny. And then the story of John 3.16 continues to move. God loves, God sent, I believe. What is it that God wants from me? He wants me to believe, to believe in Christ as my Lord and Savior. And then the story tells me that I live. I find forgiveness for my past. I become a person that is God's child. I I am forgiven for my past, my present, and my future. I belong to him for all eternity. Instead of living my life separated from God, I live my life with God, not just here, but I live my life with God forever. I think Jesus kind of went through the whole story of God, and he told these two disciples, this is what it all means. Well, in verse 28, they came near to their destination. They came near to the village where they were going. And he gave the impression that he was going farther. But they urged him, stay with us because it's almost evening and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And it was as he reclined at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were open 
and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. So Jesus goes in, and they have a meal together. And in the course of that meal, Jesus recreates a moment within the Lord's Supper. He blesses the bread. He breaks it. He offers it to them. And whenever they take of the bread, they recognize him. The confusion is cleared up. And then as soon as they recognize him, he's gone. Well, these two disciples say to each other, Weren't our hearts ablaze within us while he was talking with, while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? In life, there are times where your heart just gets stirred, where your heart is ablaze within you. We often use that imagery whenever we're talking about love. I met this person. And they just complete me. I fell in love. My heart just flutters. You know? We talk about it in that realm all the time. But there are moments in the spiritual realm where our heart is just ablaze. Where God stirs our heart and God does something that only God can do. And he gets our attention. And frequently, it kind of comes out of nowhere. I know in my own life, there, there's been several moments when my heart was, a, was set ablaze by God. I, I remember whenever I was a six-year-old boy, and I realized my need for Christ as Savior. And I never will forget the stirring of my heart and how I knelt beside my bed, and I prayed to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And that is as impactful of a day as I have ever had in my life. I remember whenever I was a 14-year-old boy, I was hanging out at youth camp, Singing Hills Youth Camp, Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was doing the things that 14-year-old boys do, and they had an evening chapel. So I go to the evening chapel service. That night I walk in, I had girls on my mind. I wanted to meet the girls that were sitting around me. I was just being a kid. But then during the, the singing, God stirred my heart. My heart was set ablaze. And that evening, I'll never forget it because that night was one of the most significant nights of my life. I had grown up in church. I, I learned to spell my name for the first time in Macaroni and Kids Church. I knew church really, really well. But that night was the moment where Christianity was no longer just what my parents had taught me, but I took the baton and I really began running the life of Christianity myself. Jesus became my Savior, my Lord. This is the person that he has called me and I desire to be. It was life-changing. My heart was stirred. I remember another night as a 35-year-old man. I was trying to go to sleep one night and I was struggling so I listened to a podcast, a sermon. I know, the preacher too, whenever he needs to go to sleep, listens to sermons, okay? I get it, okay? And I've seen that little muskrat or whatever it is on Facebook where he falls asleep listening to the sermons, okay? I, I understand. So I was listening to this podcast that night. And as I was listening, the sermon just began to stir my heart. I stayed up virtually all evening that night. Because God got a hold of me. 
I remember I actually got out of bed and I walked into my closet and there in my closet I just fell down on my knees because for the first time I really began to understand the depths of God's grace and and it really clicked completely that God's love for me is not based on my loveliness but it is extended to me through His grace. And I began to realize that I am loved by God because I'm in Christ and nothing can separate me from that love because Christ did for me what I could never do for myself. God doesn't have a he loves me, he loves me not theology. God has a grace-driven theology that is extended to us through his grace. There are these moments that come to us in life where God speaks to us We often do not see it coming, and once it happens, we are never the same. And so I ask you today, is Easter 2015 one of those moments in your life where God sets your heart ablaze and God just is speaking to you? Maybe he's showing you that you have need of a Savior. Maybe he's showing you that Being a Christian is not about how good you can be or how much Bible you know. That being a Christian is about you placing your faith in Christ. And your heart has been stirred and you realize that's the decision you need to make today. Maybe he's stirred your heart and he's shown you that this faith that has been passed down to you by your parents and your grandparents, that that has to be more than just their faith It needs to be your faith, and today is the day that God is saying, okay, take that baton because this is the person I want you to be, and I want you to love me and serve me out of a heart that loves me. Maybe you're the person that God is stirring the heart to the realization of the depth of his grace, and you've spent a lot of time trying to be good enough to be loved by God, and he's begun to show you that his love is not based upon your loveliness. His love is based on his grace. And you need to embrace that truth and let it change you. Because when you embrace that truth, you can live forgiven. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we have a time of commitment? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads in prayer, and the band's going to come. And we're transitioning in the service now. We'll sing a song. We'll have an opportunity to give. But we also have a time here where we can truly respond to God. And I want to ask if if you're the person that I was talking about that needs to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. Because if that's the decision you need to make today, I want to invite you right now without any hesitation to cry out to God. You might say something along the lines of, Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I've done things that are wrong and I ask for your forgiveness. And right now in this place, Easter 2015, I give my heart, I give my life to you. I embrace Jesus as Lord. I embrace him as Savior. And I pray, Father, for the strength and the wisdom to follow him all the days of my life. I desire to be your child. If today you're making that decision for the first time, if you've been awakened to that reality, please tell me. I'll be here at the front during this song. I'll be around after the service. 
I just ask you to find me and let me know because I want to celebrate with you. Tell people in your life that you know walk with God. Let them know about the decision that you're making and about the significance of this day because they want to help you and encourage you and know kind of where to go from here. There might be others that are here today and the Lord has stirred your heart. So I ask you, what is God saying? What has the Holy Spirit of God spoken into your soul today? And how will you respond? Will you push away? Clench the fist in anger? Or will you open the hand? Embrace Him. Trust Him. And let His love flow within you. What is God saying to you? How will you respond? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for what this day means. We thank you that there is new life in you. That there is eternal life in you. We thank you that because of this day, there are people that we have grieved their passing. That we will see again. We thank you that because of this day, we can live life to the fullest, live life forgiven, live life with joy and hope. And we thank you, Lord, that you do speak to us. And we pray, Father, that when you stir our hearts, that we will listen. In Jesus' name, amen.